Hello and welcome to Next. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you have an opportunity, go to Facebook and like our page, or you can follow us on Twitter at 814 on Twitter at 814 Next. Lend your voice to the dialogue. Uh, today we are talking about several topics. Topic number one, we are talking about this hotly contested um, election coming up this year. And two, we will talk about Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Our first guest is Mr. Fred Rush. Uh, Fred, welcome to the show. My pleasure coming in. All right. And with Mr. Rush, we will be talking about this upcoming election um, for a, a host of reasons. This will be an election that will probably shatter uh, records in the past in terms of turnout. Uh, I know in the past we've seen record turnout for the Obama election, especially his first uh, election. But this one coming up will probably see more people than we've ever seen. Uh, COVID-19 has really accentuated or heightened our awareness in all things, uh, whether it is um, social issues, political issues, or what have you. Uh, the most polarizing president, arguably, in history, Mr. Donald Trump, is, is going for a second term, and he is being challenged by Joe Biden. Uh, when you look at everything that's going on in this entire political landscape, especially when you look at the first debate, there are so many different reasons that people find themselves squarely um, in one camp or the other for a host of reasons. And so we want to just kind of analyze today the importance of coming up or coming out and showing up for this election and really making your voice heard. And so we look at the fact that there are 22 million ballots already cast this year. 22 million for uh, mail-in ballots. Some people are showing up to vote in person. So already we are having record-breaking numbers. Uh, Fred, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your political background. Well, I basically uh, grew up in Erie. Went to Erie schools and uh, went to Penn State, came back and go to Gannon and stuff. So I feel like an Erie person, although I was born in Mississippi and migrated north in the World War II with my parents. But uh, I've been involved in a lot of things, politics mostly. I recently retired from the city of Erie after spending basically 14 years with Joe Sennett since he was mayor. And Prior to that, I've been working with Tom Ridge when he was governor in Homeland Security, and I spent years with Mayor Louis J. Tulio, and I worked with Judy Lynch at the courthouse, and a lot of my time has been spent either in government or in public service. Uh, HR director Gannon for a number of years, so Erie's my home, Erie's what I enjoy, and I enjoy watching this political scenario playing out right now. Mm -hmm. So, from a political standpoint, tell us about your personal conviction about voting. Obviously, you are a person who respects the process, is a part of the process, but for someone listening or watching that is on the fence, why do you think it's important to be involved with the political process? I always say, if you don't vote, don't complain. You will have an opportunity to basically make a choice and influence an election. Voter registration first, voter participation second, and then following the art of politics, because it is an art. 
Mm. You know, it's it's a game of numbers and majority usually rules, and unless you're part of that process, don't stand outside and throw rocks at it. Uh, this election now, particularly the presidential one, is got to make history. It's the first election we ever had where both candidates are over 70. All right, the first election we've had where we've seen so much divide in this country, basically, since the Andrew Jackson campaign. But uh, I think some of that's being stoked by people deliberately. And that's one thing that scares me most, the deliberate division of people from our concepts of democracy and fair play and honesty and those kind of things. So I think the political game is about to make a seismic shift when this election is done. We saw a small one when Obama was elected and then re-elected. And that, I think, brought us together. Now we're seeing one that divides us. So it's all across the board, mm -hmm. all right? At the federal, state, and even local level. Some of these campaign ads are more divisive and mean than I've seen in a long time. So I'm not fearful of the country. I think that we have an opportunity to grow from this experience. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to see where we go. So at my office, I have a double matted um, image. On the left side, it is a, a bill of sale for a relative of mine from the days of slavery. Um, and I got both of these documents from my great-grandmother. On the right side of this matted document, or this, um, this double-framed document, is the emancipation uh, document for another relative. And I have those hanging on my wall because I'm ever present of the price that was paid for me to uh, do what I do for a living, have a voice in community as I have. And so I'm always conscious of that. You mentioned, Mr. Rusty, you are from Mississippi. Talk briefly about the price paid for our right to vote and kind of underscore the, the importance of voting based on that historical reflection. If you start, like you say, historically, after the Civil War in the election of basically 17, 18, 1872, black men were registered at 85%. Women were not allowed to register because they were women, of course. But 85% of that election went participation. Then slowly, the legislatures in the southern cities started invoking laws. Laws about education, laws about residency, laws about poll taxes, all those things that basically excluded many black people from participating. And now I'm watching what's happening now. They're taking our ballot boxes and throwing them away and doing all kind of crazy things, the same thing. But growing up in Mississippi, I learned a lot. I learned a lot of a lot of things. And uh, I saw the unequal education system. I saw the unequal justice system. And I think the only way you combat those kind of things is through education, hard work, and knowledge. And that knowledge goes right across the board. I saw my aunt was a school teacher. I remember going to school with her, and we had an all-black little school. And as the white buses drove by, the black kids walking to school, you couldn't participate. But it was interesting. Now we have an opportunity to do it. We have to drive hard through the opportunity. We have to participate. We have to be there. We have to do what we have to do. The South, as I used to say, 
the south of the south and the north is up south. In a lot of cases, up south, we've given up our own opportunities, so we have to get back in being and exercising all our rights as citizens. Mm. When you look at everything that's going on in terms of America's um, facing its, its history and its historical record of race issues, I would say, what goes through your mind as you watch these young people and people in general protest over some of the things that um, have happened in recent history, be that uh, the Ahmaud Arbery case or the George Floyd case or recently the Breonna Taylor case, I know that you have seen quite a few things leading up to this moment. You were present for the 60s. Yep. You watched all the protests there. You were present for the, the moments of Malcolm and Martin and Medgar and all these other individuals. What goes through your mind as you watch the modern day protests? I think it's, it's encouraging. It's people getting engaged. It's people caring. I want to make sure we take time, though, to teach our young people their history, mm -hmm. all right? As Bill Cosby says, you know, black history lost, straight, or stolen. If you haven't been taught it, if you don't know it exists, you think you're starting anew. You're not starting anew. You're standing on the shoulders of people who have helped build this country, given you a life, and has moved this country this far. Your responsibility is to teach the next generation so that history is not lost. You know, I referenced one point with you when we, before we started talking, we were talking about the flagship Niagara. Very few people know that over 20% of Perry's crew were freed black men that came down here from New England to fight in that battle, all right? And when you document that, the kids are saying, really? I took a group of young people on a tour of the Niagara, and we went through the ship and the whole bit, and they were impressed, and when we got off the ship and walking back, one girl turned to me and said, I know it's a wooden ship. Where did they keep the slaves? Now I have to start a whole new process of education, all right? That was the impression of sailing ships and slaves. So, but we worked with it. So I think the education process in this is just as important, even probably more important, the activation part of it. I'd love to see them active. But I know coming back from Nam, we stopped in Frisco with Black Panthers. They had schools they were teaching. Mm -hmm. Individuals sitting down, talking with young people about the schools, their history. And that's what we have to activate here. So our young people don't believe they're starting at base zero. They are standing on the shoulders of giants. See, it's interesting that you say that because when you look at, be that the, the protest in the NFL, and you look at the, um, the Black Lives Matter protest, one of the, Colin Kaepernick, one of the things that people point out often is that the flaw is end game. And you'll hear people talk about Colin Kaepernick and they'll say, well, what's the end game? And even with the NBA, I think it was an interview with Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan's like, well, what's the end game? Mm -hmm. And I know we're getting the word out about social justice. And when you look back at, you mentioned the Black Panthers, I mean, the after school program, the, the, the serving breakfast to students in the morning. I mean, that was all born from the Black Panther movement. You had the Yellow Peril and the Brown, Brown Pride, all these different movements learned from the Black Panthers, the, the, the King movement, the Civil Rights Movement had legislative goals. And so, where in-game is concerned, talk about the value of having a goal in protest. If you're gonna win any game, you have to have an idea of what that game should be. 
I'm watching now as young people get involved and they talk about things like criminal justice, all right? They talk about police brutality, they talk about education and economics and opportunity. Those are the end goals, all right? They're not hard to see. When you talk about equality and all the areas that are out there, this country runs on two basic principles, economics and politics. We are becoming active in the political side. We have to become just as active in the economic side. When you sit down and talk to people, what is their plan to raise the economics of the classes in this country? The economics. We have plenty of billionaires and a lot of poor people looking for something to eat tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that's just not fair. Mm. And so where plans are concerned, I have been following the situation with Ice Cube, the rapper Ice Cube. And Ice Cube has a plan for African Americans, an economic plan, and he's been shopping this plan to the Democratic Party. He's been shopping this plan to the Republican Party. And he's been talking about it online a lot. And I look at the pushback that Ice Cube is getting for even entertaining the Republican Party and the sitting president with this plan. And Ice Cube's thing was, as you pointed out, we have to have a goal, an economic goal, a strategic goal for, as, as African Americans in order to, to really progress in this country. Because according to him, we are being left behind. Ice Cube made it a point to say that other groups are out distancing us in multiple categories. We are loyal to a particular party. In his mind, we are not getting what we are paying for. So where the plan is concerned, I don't know if you've seen that or not, but having an economic goal as African Americans in particular, how important is that in your mind? I think it's very important. I think you couple economics with education, with politics and so forth. We've had over 100 years of historical black college and universities. Some of them are thriving, some of them are not doing that well. That was a secret in some things for our success. That educational mainstream has to be kept alive, all right? So it doesn't, economics is something that has to be taught like every other thing. Our public school system is suffering. Because I don't think we're getting the quality out of that where we should be. A lot of our students are going to private schools, whatever schools there are out there, because they haven't developed it. I talk sometime in, in arguments about just what we lost uh, basically 25 years ago when the FOP in Philadelphia took the city to court about residency, mm -hmm. that city employees, police, fire, workers, teachers had to live in the city. When that was overturned by the Superior Court, 62% of the police department in Philadelphia had moved to New Jersey in less than 14 months. You have to get to know people you're living with and working with and trying to help. But having an economic plan, I don't think there's any one plan. I think there's a whole bunch of positive plans that you can put forward. There's not any one company in America, Walmart, Fights, Target, no. you could have more than one. There doesn't have to be one black plan, mm -hmm. but there has to be people educated to take advantage of the economic opportunities that are there mm -hmm. and to make sure the economic opportunities are there. So you've been on the political scene for quite some time. Before we go into the value of local politics or the impact of local politics, give us from your vantage point the state of the African-American community here in Erie from years gone by to right now. 
Well, I think there's a couple things you can look at, really. Uh, there's a transition of leadership going on. When I was growing up, we had the leaders. We had the Paul Martins, the Alex Thompsons, Ernie Denny's, and so forth, and those kind of folks. We had the Axe Center and then Booker T. And now there's a new group coming up. You're part of it. Other people are part of it. And I think they are looking basically for their place in this society. When Obama ran in 2008, we went to the convention in Denver and to the inaugural, and I ran this part up there for them in 2012, the same kind of thing. And, and there, if you look across the board, there are more black people being elected to public office than ever before. Black mayors in major cities and so forth. That's because the organizational efforts are making and we have to get more of basically dealing with each other on a social, political, and economic basis. So local politics, obviously, as we pointed out at the onset of this show, on a national level, the, the presidential campaign or the presidential election is paramount, probably one of the largest in modern day history. Mm -hmm. What people routinely sleep on, though, is, is the impact of local politics. And outside of having a, a presidential election, sometimes the turnout is not what it should be when there are local politicians either vying for new office or to be reelected. Talk to our viewers and our listeners a little bit about just how valuable voting in the local elections is to the average Erieite. Voting in a local election is the roots to the tree. That's what feeds this community. Your school board, your city council, your county council, all right? your state legislators, your state senate, then up to your governors and auditor generals and those things. But the local election has to be a key area that we target. And in a lot of cases, when you have, in this community, a school board of nine people, and two of them happen to be minorities, but the school district is over 47% minority, there's something to be said. You look at the county council, we have one black county councilman. And a lot of that depends on our organization and our work. I think there are good people out there who will work with us to change this dynamic, but it has to start with us. And you look around the board, you look down to places like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, they're trying to reach out to communities like Erie and work with us and teach us and get us out there. So we have to be receptive and we have to be able to move. The political construct of Pennsylvania in most major states is between the two largest cities and the state capital. The political construct of Pennsylvania's Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And when you go down there and talk to those folks, they think I-80 is the end of Pennsylvania. Anything about I-80 is Canada. Right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you look at the political <laughs> construct of California, it's Frisco, Sacramento, LA. New York, Buffalo, Albany, New York City. Nobody talks about Rochester, come on. Nobody talks about Toledo in Ohio, it's Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati. So we have to be more receptive of reaching out and making relationships and friends with the people who are in political leadership on the political track. Mm -hmm. Erie has found itself at the epicenter of the political landscape these days. Before Erie County was a pivotal county in the presidential election, there have been a lot of um, articles and interviews in which Erie was referenced. Recently, we had President, what, President, the presidential candidate Joe Biden come to Erie. And now we have, the day after this broadcast, 
we will have President Trump coming to Erie once again. So Erie's a player when it comes to this national landscape. What, what does that mean for us and how should Erie try to convert that political capital in this moment? I think you, be, you become involved. First of all, when they look at Erie, they look at basically how the construct is, politically construct basically. This is two different communities. There's a community above I-90 and there's a community below I-90. One is basically Democrat, the other is basically Republican. Now, if you're sitting around as a political statistician and technician, you're seeing that. So you bring that to four. They, they, the Democrats and Republicans in this community are basically divided that way. Our congressmen from below I-90. They used to be from above I-90, okay? Look at how it's playing out now. Our thing is to reach out with people in the whole area, whether it be Democrats, Republicans, say, these are our goals and objectives, these are our goals and objectives. How can we match these up? It's better to make friends and enemies, and it's better to light a candle than to curse the dark. <laughs> so without endorsement, let's hear your assessment of both of these candidates. Let's start with um, the, the challenger, Joe Biden. What's your assessment of Joe Biden as a presidential candidate? Well, I've seen, I've seen Joe, I was there at the inaugural in 08 and in 12 and the whole bit and had a great time. And I've seen him work. He's a Pennsylvania boy who went to Delaware and did everything right. I think he is espousing the things that most folks want, an opportunity for themselves, their children to live. And I think he is going to be well connected with the rest of the world. The incumbent and I have problems with because I think he has weakened not only America, but America's image in the world. All right, that, that bothers me because we're so divided and he's a vociferous speaker that has a hard time staying on the factual track. Now, I won't call a man a liar. I'll let everybody else do that. But if the facts are the facts, he just hasn't been. And he wasn't trained to be in that position. I look at people's backgrounds when they go to run for office. Have they served in office? Have they been on volunteer programs and worked with poor folks and so forth? That's how I judge a candidate, not how boisterous or vociferous he is and how he can come up with catchy slogans and then demean everybody else. All right, lock her up and those kind of things. Because that's raw meat to a certain segment of America. Mm. All right. And they come out with their little AK-47s and a whole bit. I'm old non vet. I know what they can do. It's not a game they're playing out there. So my basic tendency here, I look at the party. I look at the presidential race. I know who I'm voting for. For the first time in history, we have a black female running for vice president. I remember when Shirley Chisholm announced her run for president. I remember Jesse Jackson. I have a picture I have to show you of Jesse Jackson uh, when he came to Erie. And these are the things that change society. Mm -hmm. And society can be changed for the better, but it can't be changed for the better with bad thoughts, bad ideas, and making people feel that they're under assault mm -hmm. by people from below the border and all over the place. That's just wrong. So let me touch on, before we close out this segment, let me touch on the Supreme Court battle. You know, I find it so fascinating. This thing is, is like the best soap opera ever. Because if you, if you look back decades ago during the Reagan administration, 
when he was trying to um, put forth the name of Judge Bork, Robert Bork. And he was lambasted by the Democrats at that time. And it was the first time that we had really seen the gloves come off in such a, um, in such a manner in the political landscape. And when you look back at those moments, as he's being grilled by Democrats at that time, one of the Democrats that took part in that grilling is the, the presidential candidate now in Joe Biden. And that first term senator that took umbrage to the whole situation and was just livid about the outcome of those confirmation hearings was a young, um, wow, now I'm, I'm losing my, I'm losing my, my thought process. When you look at how that whole thing is, Mitch McConnell, I'm sorry, okay. was a young Mitch McConnell. And so here we are in this moment in 2020, decades later, and you have one who is the presidential candidate and the other is the most powerful member of the Republican Party. And you have the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now, you know, a, a confirmation hearing or confirmation hearings uh, for a new chief justice. What are your thoughts on the Supreme Court? How important is this seat? A little historical context. When you watch this whole thing play out with a potential judge, Amy Coney Barrett, what are your thoughts as you're watching this whole thing? I, I'm fascinated by it because it depends on what sh who's wearing what shoe. But politics is politics. I remember the first black Supreme Court justice. I remember getting out of my bed in Mississippi to lay by the fire because he'd come through. Thurgood Marshall and they would go down south and fight those cases. He'd stop at grandpa's house. That was a safe house, they called it at the mm. time. And then I look up and he is on the Supreme Court. And he had earned that. Brown versus the board and so forth and so on. And ever since then, you have to understand that, well, we want to keep some things permanent, but everything's in transition. And politics is the core of what it is. Politics and economics. We can argue, they can talk about packing the court and all those kind of things. For the last four years, Trump has put 700 federal people on the bench, either local or federal. They have packed the court beautifully. Now, when we woke up and found out what was happening, now we're appalled. But I don't doubt she'll make it through. And I, doubt, I don't doubt there'll be a big backlash back and forth. But that's what the game is called. Politics, politics, politics. And you mentioned Thurgood Marshall. You know, Mitch McConnell, that one of his first moves in his response to the Judge Bork hearings was to push through Clarence Thomas. Absolutely. As the replacement for retired Thurgood Marshall. You remember that. And so the battle, the battle lines were drawn then and every year from that time, that has been the name of the game for the Republicans. And so here we are in this historic time and an unprecedented number of chief justices that will lean towards the conservative side if in fact, which it looks like in all, for all intents and purposes she will, uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett will be confirmed. And so any last, any last messages you want to give to people about the upcoming election and uh, any words to encourage them to come on out and make their voices heard? I think you just mentioned a very important point. The Republicans had a long range strategy. They've been plotting this for 30 years to get the Supreme Court. We have to set a strategy too. If you're a poor folks person or a black person or a female or whatever you're, 
interest is set a strategy work with people to make sure that there's balance balance is the key work hard commit yourself we have spent more money in this election on both sides than i've ever seen spent before i get more meal in my meal box all right mm -hmm. and it's crazy i'm watching the fight about just the mail in ballots they've made a war about that it's just we have to become involved don't sit back and let someone else do your job all right mr fred rush thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the value of voting always love your historical perspective and the wisdom that you bring to the show we appreciate it and uh, you enjoy the rest of your day thank you sir i appreciate the time all right the following program contains content which may not be suitable for all audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Today we are in studio with Ms. Robin Young. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you do at SafeNet. I, um, I work with direct service staff that work directly with clients. I also um, do a lot of community education programs. I go out into the community and talk to pretty much anybody that will listen about what we do because it's important to get the community involved and to understand domestic violence so they can help potential victims. And we have you on because this is a very special month where domestic violence is concerned. Tell us about that. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so it's the month that we try to um, celebrate the survivors and remember the victims. Give us a working definition of domestic violence. It may seem like a silly question, but we wanna be sure that we are understanding this for exactly what it is. Thank you. Domestic violence is power and control. Um, it's a partner who you know, controls who you talk to, where you go, who you're around, you know, maybe doesn't let you you know, visit with friends or puts up a big fuss when you want to spend time with your friends. It's somebody who basically controls everything. And then at some point, it generally can become physical. Doesn't always, though. Sometimes it's mental and emotional. But it can also be physical, financial, or sexual. Mm. And this is one of the reasons that I ask, because I think when people hear domestic violence, they think about someone physically beating another. Uh, I remember a guy who would sarcastically put his wife down every single chance he got in front of other people and to me it felt like just that it felt like domestic violence and so when you give that definition of this broad range i think that people really need to hear that when you got involved with this work was it just an occupational hiring is this a personal calling how did you get involved with um, this type of work at SafeNet? Well, originally when I got involved with this type of work i had a fam a close family member that had been through it and so i i didn't really know what it was when she was experiencing it, but I learned what it was. And I think what you said about, you know, people when they hear domestic violence, think of it as physical. That's so important because you don't recognize it sometimes until it gets physical. You know, in the beginning, it's that put downs and making you feel like you're stupid and you can't do anything right. That's how they lower your self-esteem. That makes it easier to keep you in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Domestic violence is a, an issue that only women experience, true or false? No, that's false. Unfortunately, everyone can experience domestic violence, and it happens at different stages and different ages. Truly, um, it happens to males as well. You know, I mean, even males have been killed because of domestic violence. 
Um, so it truly can happen to anybody in any relationship. Mm -hmm. are, are men a little more, um, do they struggle to come forth with their stories more? They do, because that's how society socializes them. It mm -hmm. makes it more difficult. I mean, you know, if you're a male to come forward and say, my wife, my partner, my girlfriend, or, or you know, is, is being abusive to me. But truly, it does happen to anybody, and we understand that, and that, you know, we try to be there and be available for everyone at SafeNet. Mm -hmm. I have a relative who was stabbed to death by his girlfriend. And when you hear about women putting their hands on men, it's almost like a, a joke when people have that conversation or you, you hear them talk about it. You know, she, she hit him or she threw something at him or what have you. What do you say to people when they make light of those type of situations? Well, I try to explain to them that it can be anybody, anytime. And even, you know, we go into the schools and we talk to young men about it because for a guy, it's sometimes harder to get out of the relationship, you know, to get somebody off of you maybe that has their hands on you without it looking like you were doing something to them because that's what people think or that's what society thinks. But it truly does happen to everyone. And we just keep trying to tell that to everybody so that someday, at some point, people will understand that. Mm -hmm. This Domestic Violence Awareness Month, how long has this been uh, a thing in terms of uh, national awareness? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, October has been Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I don't know, but it's been longer than Breast Cancer Awareness mm -hmm. Month. Interesting, because I think more people are aware of breast cancer that's awareness. True. That is very true. Than in this particular issue. Give us the red flags, because you always want to, you would think that uh, you would notice if someone in your orbit was involved in a domestic violence situation, and certainly we are concerned about our friends, our family members, coworkers that we're close to. What are some of the red flags that we can look for in order to determine whether or not someone may be in a domestic violence situation? Oh, that's a great question. It's, um, if you're in a situation, it's a partner who wants to know where you're going all the time. You know, who are you going to be with? They want to know, um, you know, why your friend of the opposite sex is calling or texting. They want, to, they want to control who you're working with sometimes. They want all of your time. Somebody who gets upset because you maybe go to visit with family members every Saturday, and maybe your family doesn't care for them. You know, some of those things are things to pay attention to. You know, somebody that makes you feel bad about yourself, tells you you can't do anything right, you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're whatever. And then sometimes, you know, and people don't recognize it because it's the opposite. Oh, it's just because I love you so much. I'm not really, I don't mean to be jealous, but it's just because I, I love you so much. I don't want other guys looking at you or other girls looking at you. Um, it's those types of things. It's when it's on the extreme end. It's not just one of those things, but when it's to the extreme that they control everything around you. Mm -hmm. We see people in this situation, and one of the common questions is, why doesn't he or she just leave? Or we ask ourselves, what is it about this person who is committing the domestic violence? Either way it goes, is there a pattern, a historical pattern that lends itself to people either being overly tolerant with such behavior or engaging in such behavior? Well, that's, that's good to talk about because in the beginning, it starts out so slowly. You don't recognize it when they're just they want to be they want to be with you all the time they want to spend all their time with you you feel like they really love you they just they just and how who who can find fault with a partner that 
says, I just want to be with you so much. You know, I just want to spend every Saturday with you or every Saturday and Sunday with you or, you know, who finds fault with that? But it's after it happens all the time. And then in between, they're telling you you can't do anything right. So they're ruining your self-esteem. And then when something does happen, it's your fault. Well, if you hadn't just, well, if you wouldn't have been talking to that, that strange guy all the time, or if you weren't going out with your friends all the time, or whatever, it was, they make it into your fault. So if they've pushed you, or they've slapped you, or they've done something more minor, it's your fault. And so because you can't do anything right, and you've been told that over a period of time, and then something else has happened, you actually can believe it's your fault. And generally, many of them, many perpetrators, are very sorry after it happens. They're going to change. They're going to quit using alcohol or drugs or whatever they perceive is the problem. It's going to be different. You know, sometimes they offer to go to a counselor. They're going to change. And because, I mean, we have best friends, we give our best friends second chances, third chances, who wouldn't give a partner that they truly care about a second or third chance. In fact, people often give them seven to 11 chances. Mm -hmm. When people work in any type of human services, it is oftentimes something that they take home with them. And so whether that is nursing, uh, being a police officer, things along those lines, you know, these personal narratives and these personal stories and these personal experiences stay with us and stick with us. And obviously you can't mention any names or particular situations, but if you could just kind of clue us in or let us in on, you know, give us an example of when a case that you've handled just stayed with you and you had a tough time shaking it personally. Oh, I've had, I've been doing this for 22 years, so I've had quite a few. Um, I think some of the, some of the situations that were maybe more surprising for me, um, there have been a couple, I think, some people think that this can't happen to everyone. And the, tru the truth is that I have served everyone from police officers' wives to preachers' wives. Mm -hmm. And so in some of those situations, I've, I've been, it's been sort of shocking. I think um, one of the ones that have stuck with me, too, was I was in a hospital emergency room with a woman, and she was getting her fingers sewn back on oh. while I was holding her hand and trying to encourage her that, you know, Things can be okay again. Um, that was probably one of the most difficult ones. So the other thing that sometimes is hard is when somebody chooses not to leave or goes back for the second, third, fourth time, you know, and they've had broken ribs, black eyes. I've had seen people that have had their eyes basically gouged out by partners. Um, it's, it's, um, it's rough sometimes. You do take those home, but it makes me more... Um, it makes me more empathetic to try to um, make the community understand so that when they see a friend going through this, they can do something about it. So you've done this for 22 years. I can only imagine what you've seen, even just based on that last description that you gave us, what you've seen in those 22 years. Time off from work is something that the average person <laughs> appreciates. You know, I got a week off, I've got two weeks vacation. Have you had moments where you had to just take extended time off to just collect yourself uh, in order to continue on serving in this manner? Well, I haven't taken extended time off, but there have definitely been some long drives with loud music or long walks with loud music. 
um, you do have to take care of yourself and um, you do have to take care of yourself. I get a couple weeks off every year, but I, um, it's important to take care of yourself when you do this. Mm -hmm. An interesting statistic here, it says that children who grow up in domestic violence are 75% more likely to end up with someone who will abuse them or become abusive. Talk about that uh, statistic a little. Yes, it's very important um, if you have children to remove them from the situation because they grow up seeing this type of relationship and they, they believe that's what a relationship looks like then um, as adults because that's, that's the expected, that's what they saw when they were children, that's how their parents were. And so, you know, we learn about how to have relationships from those around us. So it's very important, you know, to get out of a situation if you have children. Mm -hmm. Talk about the, the SafeNet as an organization. Is this a 501c3? What, what's the structure of SafeNet? SafeNet is a 501c3. We're a nonprofit. Um, we are funded through state and federal grants and community donations. And um, we employ about 35 people that um, maintenance people, we have emergency shelter, we have legal services, we have medical services, we go into the hospitals and meet with victims that, you know, present at the hospitals. Um, and uh, we have 24-7 coverage to talk to victims. And all of our services are completely free and confidential. Give us the average profile of a person who would uh, procure your services for various reasons. Oh, an average profile. I would say generally they're in their early 20s. Um, we serve about 1,500 women and children a year, about 90 males. They often call us for the first time saying, you know, I'm not sure what's going on. We're fighting all the time. It just feels like, you know, I can't, I can't get them to stop yelling at me or things just never seem to stop. And so then we talk about the relationship. We sort of dissect it over the phone. Um, we offer for them to come into services. Um, average length of stay for the first person that leaves is sometimes two or three days if they even come. It's not easy to make that change because after a bad fight, there's, there's the I'm sorry. See, you actually led me to my next question. So there's a person who is the victim of domestic violence. And from the sidelines, people say, leave, leave. And let's just say that person does that. And as you pointed out, sometimes the I'm sorry kicks in. They give them the second chance, third chance, fourth chance. What does it look like for someone to completely transition out of this type of situation on average? Well, it looks like someone who leaves sometimes needs emergency shelter because not everybody has a credit card to go to the local Hilton. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they need emergency shelter. Sometimes they leave without shoes on their feet. Sometimes they're lucky to have shoes and clothing and a bag you know, of belongings. Sometimes they stay in emergency shelter or they stay with friends and family. Um, emergency shelter is very nice and very comfortable, but it's not always as nice as being with your, your own family. And when they leave, you know, the perpetrator is sometimes calling them, contacting them. They usually have one, two, three, I've seen five or more children even. Um, and they're trying to keep their kids happy. They're trying to keep them in school. These days, 
that alone is difficult. Um, they're trying to either get a job or keep a job, um, trying to find a place to live. Leaving is so difficult when you think about all the things you have to do. You know, even if you're lucky enough to have a credit card and go to the local Hilton, that's not easy. Um, leaving is very difficult because you're breaking off a relationship that you've been in for some period of time with somebody you care about. You are changing the relationship with your children. Your children sometimes want to go home or want the other parent. You, um, you're looking for a place to live, looking for a job, trying to get a paycheck, trying to find furnishings for a home. And who wouldn't go back when the other person is saying, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. it's going to be different, it's going to be okay. You have a family member that's involved with something like this and they're transitioning out of an abusive relationship. What can family members or friends do to support someone who is in the process of leaving this type of situation behind? Number one, um, when they're still in the relationship, be there for them. That partner is going to try to take them away from you. They're going to try to isolate them. Continue to be there. Even if you've said 20 times you need to leave, continue to be there for them until they're ready. When somebody actually leaves, they're 75% more likely to be killed or injured. So you really, you have to judge. Don't get in the middle of it. Stay as far away as you can from it, but help them, help them be safe. Um, if it's not safe for them to stay at their own home, tell them about at your home. Tell them about SafeNet. They can stay there free of charge. If it is safe for them to be at your home, don't have the perpetrator around. Don't go with them to help them move out. If it's been physical and there have been threats, um, there's a, a potential for a protection from abuse order. SafeNet can help people do those free of charge. Don't get in the middle of it. Just um, keep keep yourself safe as well as your friend or family member um, and just be there for them and understand that it's hard and that they still have feelings for the person. Those feelings don't come overnight. They don't go away overnight. Be patient. Mm -hmm. You brought up homicide and I don't know the specific statistic, but overwhelmingly when women are murdered, it is the husband or significant other uh, a large percentage of the time. Talk about that a little bit. It is, and it's um, too often it's when they're leaving because that is the most dangerous time. That, that person who was abusive to you is losing their power. They want their power back. If you've got a protection from abuse order, then you're not having contact with them. You don't know when they're stalking you. Um, you have, there's a lot of things around safety and safety planning. That's something else that SafeNet can help with. We talk to people about whether all of their doors and windows lock. We just, we go through the whole safety planning plan. And even there's a safety, you know, different safety plans for where you are in the situation. If you've already left versus if you're still with the person. We talk about whether there's weapons involved. Um, and so that kind of information is really important. Mm -hmm. The plan for how to do it, not just the fact that you're going to pack your stuff and leave. So I am the father of three beautiful, brilliant daughters. <laughs> and this is one of the conversations that we have had on a regular basis as my two older daughters went to college, especially uh, domestic violence, date rape, all of these uncomfortable conversations, if you will, we have had to engage in these conversations because as a father, I'm, I'm concerned about my girls and you never not worry about them. To the parents of children in general, especially those of girls, not trying to be sexist, but I would assume that women deal with this issue 
more often than men. What kind of conversations should parents be having with their children, in particular their daughters, about domestic violence? I think it's very important to do that. You want to talk, number one, you want to build your children up their whole lives. You want to encourage them and make them the best that they can be. You want to make sure their self-esteem is, is good. Um, and then when they do start to date, you want to talk to them about how their partner treats them. You know, um, you want to watch for things like if they're spending all their time with one person because even when we're in a relationship we still need to have friendships with other people and you know both sexes we we want to have other other things to do other than just be with that person so you want to watch for some of those things and when you see things um, don't be afraid to say it to them I mean sometimes teenagers will go the opposite way but say it and stay there and continue to have the conversations eventually they will understand what you're saying to them mm -hmm. so how can community members help because I think about my own occupational journey uh, be it as a director of a teen center or the executive director of a neighborhood organization or even working in support staff in the area school district for multiple years they have always been multiple touch points with everyday people. And so when you think about different professionals in this city, what can they do to help in the, uh, the area of domestic violence? It's important for everyone to know what services are available in our community. SafeNet is the only accredited domestic violence agency in Erie. We also have a new app that's called Are You Safe? And I would suggest that that's a great app for everyone to load. It's available on Google Play or the App Store. And you can go through and answer the questions about a friend or family member. Um, individuals can also load it. Anyone can load it on their phone for free. And it helps you identify whether you have the potential to be in a domestic violence relationship. It also gives you the closest places. And the app works all over the US. So even if you were in a different state, you could find help close to you. Um, we also would encourage people to, if they think someone is in a situation where they could be injured or hurt, to say it to them. Ask them if everything is okay at home. And sometimes if it's somebody that's close to you, they won't really like you asking or they might get upset at first, but it lets them know that you're somebody they can speak to. Mm -hmm. What about training? So you, you may have an employee or employer who deals with the public on a regular basis. Maybe they want their staff to be more aware of things like this. Is that something that SafeNet offers? Yes, SafeNet is willing to come out to any local agency, organization, or business and do a training free of charge. There's no fees for any of our services. And we're, we're willing to talk to people about what domestic violence looks like, what to watch for, how to make those referrals to SafeNet. Mm -hmm. You think about educators, and I know that educators are just one example of what we call mandated reporters, be that um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, or what have you. Is, is there a mandated reporting statute where domestic violence is concerned? In other words, if people see something that they find suspicious on their jobs, is this something that they are mandated to report as well? It is not mandated to report domestic violence okay. on adults, however it is important to say something to someone if you think there's a situation because um, people have to choose to leave in their own time they have to leave when they're ready and so there's there isn't a mandated report on adults except you know if they are um, disabled mm -hmm. tell us a bit about your staff real quick because when you think about jobs like this I, you almost hate to call it a job mm -hmm. 
that these are missions and callings that people just happen to draw an income from. What type of people are employed at SafeNet? Because this definitely seems like a labor of love and something that uh, people have to be very intentional about and that they feel from the core of their being. Tell us about the staff. The staff are very dedicated. Um, some of them have had, you know, some of them have had, um, they generally have either social work, psychology degrees, a variety of different degrees, but some of them have had family members who have been in a situation or been in a situation themselves, and some of them have never had it, but they have an empathetic ear for what people go through. Um, they, they receive an incredible amount of training. They have ongoing training every year, and um, they, they generally are very empathetic. I have to tell you, during this whole COVID situation, you know, everybody said, oh, are people gonna be afraid to go to work? And, but the staff have been so brave. We are, we are very proud of them and, and happy to be part of each, mm -hmm. each other. Speaking of COVID-19, the domestic violence numbers have been spiking since COVID-19, correct? They have, and people have been stuck at home with each other under intense situations and, you know, serious, you know, types of domestic violence because people are stuck in the house together. Um, it just escalates things. Mm -hmm. So you have an event coming up here for SafeNet. Talk about that just a touch, please. Sure. We have our, every October we have the annual Boo Run, and it's a lot of fun. People wear costumes, and, you know, sometimes families come out or individuals come out. And this year it's going to be virtual because of COVID, but it's still going to be lots of fun. Um, uh, people will run on October 31st in their costumes or without their costumes, um, but it will still be lots of fun. Mm. Excellent. And so as we uh, work towards closing this segment out, this Domestic Violence Awareness Month, uh, give us an idea of what that looks like on a national level. What are some of the things that organizations do to include your own to bring forth that, that awareness throughout the month of October? We did kick the month off with a press conference to let people know that we rolled out the new Are You Safe app in October because that's very important, you know, that, that bystander point of view. We also are going to be part of a Poetry Live event um, this month on the 22nd where lots of victims will be writing poetry and sharing it at the Blasco Library and then the Boo Run at the end of the month. Mm. Excellent. Any, anything that you want to leave our viewers and our listeners with as we think more on the topic of domestic violence? Just be aware of what your friends, your family members are going through in their relationships. If something doesn't feel right to you, don't be afraid to say it. Mm -hmm. you know, say it to them. Let them know that there could be a situation. Ask if they feel comfortable at home. If somebody you know, seems to be trying to always be on time for something and they're afraid of being late returning home you know just pay attention and if it doesn't feel right say it mm. one of the things i wanted to ask before we close out is SafeNet. is there one location multiple locations are there key partnerships how can people uh, get in touch with SafeNet if they in fact need services or just want to learn more about this particular topic our um, hotline number is 814-454-8161 People can also walk into our offices, our administrative offices at 1702 French Street. Um, services are available there. We do have some confidential locations in the city of Erie where people are housed, um, but the main thing would be to come into our office. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned twice before we close this Are You Safe app. 
give us a reason why we should download this app. Is it necessarily for people who are only experiencing domestic, domestic violence? Who should download this app? Everyone should download the app because it will go through a list of questions. And so if you have a friend in this situation, you can answer the questions according to what things that your friend has shared with you. In the app, it also has a place where you can keep a diary of things that happen if you're a victim. And you can put the individual situations in there. It's not stored on your phone. It's stored at a, in an email address. You can even include pictures and stuff in case you would ever need like a protection from abuse order later. Um, and of course, giving the domestic violence telephone number to the location closest to you. And it also calls 911. So everyone should load the app and share it with a friend. Robin Young, uh, Director of Domestic Violence Services from SafeNet. Robin, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So this is Marcus Atkinson for Next on WQLN. As we close, I want you to think seriously about the, the topics that we've discussed today. Certainly, Domestic Violence Awareness Month is something that we all want to consider. I don't think there's a person listening or watching who hasn't been affected by this issue in some way, shape, or form. And it is something that plagues many people in our society. And if you know someone who you suspect may be dealing with such an issue, such an issue please reach out to someone and make an attempt to help before it's too late. The issue of voting that we discussed in this first segment, this will air just a few days prior to us actually going to the polls. And I know that many people are uh, aware of the fact that our voices matter. Some people may be jaded when it comes to voting. Uh, some people are frustrated by the electoral college process and being elected as president versus having the, the, the general election numbers or, or the majority numbers or what have you. I think more than ever, we have an election, regardless of what side you fall on, that just begs each and every person in this country to come out and be a part of the process. And if you haven't considered it, if you have been one of those apathetic people that has sat on the fence or hasn't been involved in the process, won't you consider this month being, or this election being the election that you actually get up and make your voices heard via the vote? I think that it's, per that it's paramount. I think that it is key to where we are in America right now. And there are so many issues facing us in this country, economically, in terms of uh, race relations, all types of things, America's having its reckoning in so many different categories. And more than ever, you should have your voice heard in terms of where we go as a nation from here. Whether you vote DR, whether you vote for President Trump or his challenger Joe Biden, either way it goes, your vote matters and show up at the polls and make that voice heard. I am your host, Marcus Atkinson. Thank you again for joining us. You can tune in to uh, WQLN on the fourth Sunday of the month and catch next on WQLN, or you can watch us live on Facebook. Either way, we appreciate you tuning in. I'm Marcus Atkinson, I'm Marcus Atkinson and we will see you next time.